In just a moment, we will be opening up the Word of God to the book of John, chapter 13. And as I read that passage, only the beginning of that passage is going to be displayed up here on the screen. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to locate it in your Bibles or your phones uh, before we get there. And again, we'll be in John, chapter 13. The season of Easter is to me like the season of Christmas in that I don't want it to come to an end. During Christmas, one of the favorite things that I have or that I enjoy is Christmas music. And each year I get the chance, or I listen every chance I get, from the end of November onward. One of the local radio stations plays Christmas music around the clock, but come Christmas Day, when darkness descends and the clock strikes midnight, they shut it down. Suddenly, Christmas is, uh, is gone. It's ended with the abruptness of an FBI raid. No more. The music is over. No more music. No more celebration. The house lights are up, and it's time to go home. To me, it feels a little cold. It feels like a betrayal. I thought we had an understanding. I thought we were in this together. It's like knocking the last bite of ice cream right off the spoon in my hand. It feels wrong. And there are some things that simply should not be done. So I hope you'll understand when I tell you I don't want to quickly leave the resurrection story just because Easter has completed. And it's with that idea that I want to linger in a particularly profound picture given to us in Scripture. If you've ever seen the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of the Christ... It portrays the last 12 hours of the life of Jesus. And our passage for today takes place only a few hours before that opening scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And today, as you listen to God's words, and hear some of mine, I invite you to listen with an inquisitive heart. Ponder with me and ask, Lord, what action would you have me take? So let's look at his word. John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus says to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. 
for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Thank you, Father, for your word. There are two words that stand out. His hour. His hour had come. That's a pretty grand statement. It sounds like something consequential is about to happen the moment we've been waiting for. I picture a row of Olympic swimmers perched and ready to spring, or sprinters feet firmly pressed against starting blocks. Their hour has come. Their time has arrived. Years of preparation and focus have led them to pivotal moments. This is a moment pregnant with anticipation, like an actor on opening night behind the curtain, or the moment before kickoff, the silent seconds before the first salvo of war. His hour. Jesus had an hour, and his hour had come. From his lowly birth until his excruciating death, Jesus had a trajectory. He had a focus. He knew Father loved him and sent, to him, and sent him into the world to fulfill a specific mission. Jesus had an hour. Scripture reveals to us multiple occasions where the fruit of his hour was not yet ripe. At the wedding feast in Cana, before turning water into wine, Jesus spoke tenderly to his mother, telling her, My hour has not yet come. And to his brothers who goaded him into, to go into Judea and make himself publicly known, he said, My time is not yet at hand. My time has not yet fully come. Several times the Jews sought to seize him, but they were unable because, quote, His hour had not yet come. Jesus lived purposefully, ever aware of his hour, moving unwaveringly forward, an arrow from God's quiver toward the fulfillment of his mission. Jesus listened to Father. He relied upon Father and obeyed him perfectly. And this was it, the hour he had been waiting for. Jesus had told his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in verse 4, we read, Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel... He girded himself about. 
Then he poured water into the basin. and began to wash the disciples' feet. And wiped them with a towel with which he was girded. The word girded here is used in Scripture twice, in the same verse. And when you see repetition... It means something is important, something to pay attention to. So here we're paying attention to what Jesus is wearing. He removes articles of clothing to take the position of a slave and girding himself with a towel for menial labor. This would be unremarkable. This would be remarkable, rather, even if it were one of the disciples who chose to do this. Because people in that day of the same social standing did not wash one another's feet commonly. It was unthinkable for peers to do so. And this was Jesus, the root and offspring of David. Jesus, the bright morning star. Jesus, the healer of all nations. Jesus, the source of salvation, Lord of all creation girding himself about with a towel, taking the place of a slave, and washing the disciples' feet. Did we not just read in Psalm 93, the Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Thy throne is established from of old. Thou art from everlasting. Well, hearing this, the disciples knew it spoke of God in heaven. And yet Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Girded with a towel, washing the disciples' feet clothed with majesty, clothed and girded with strength. And here we have Jesus, clothed and girded not with strength, but with a towel, clothed not with majesty, but with humility. In first century Israel, feet were dirty. Open sandals and dusty streets gave rise to the custom of foot washing. Water provided, you could wash your own feet, but when being welcomed into someone's house, a foot washing was offered as an act of hospitality. And this job, being a filthy one, was relegated to the lowest of slaves. Even to this day in the Middle East, feet are understood to be dishonorable. Exposing the bottom of one's foot or shoe to another is seen as disrespectful. I don't know if you remember this, if you were around during these times. Do you remember when uh, Iraq was being invaded and Saddam Hussein's statue was toppled from one of the main squares? One of the things the local people did, who were no fan of Saddam Hussein, was to take shoes and hit the statue. It's because they were using the bottom of their feet to dishonor him. 
And you might remember George Bush, former president, at a press conference when he was craftily cat-like, using cat-like skills, dodging uh, someone who had thrown shoes at him. Same situation. Jesus, no stranger to upsetting expectations and violating social conventions, here does so again. He does the unthinkable to a stunned audience of disciples. And then there was Peter. Verse 6 says, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's stunned here, clearly, as we can see by his next statement. Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answers him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus washing their feet was a violation, a violation of social custom, a violation of the normal rabbi-disciple pecking order. They weren't expecting it. Rabbis and religious authorities often sought to gather honor to themselves at the temple and the synagogue and homes and in marketplaces and streets. Against this backdrop, Jesus stands or kneels in stark contrast. Peter is so averse to this idea that he chastises Jesus. The apple cart is upset and all is not well. Well, what were his expectations? I don't know exactly. Was he expecting to be attending a royal coronation? Was he hoping for an overthrow of Rome? Was he simply seeking to be inducted into a leadership position in Jesus' kingdom that he spoke of? Well, whatever it was, we're pretty sure that it did not include Jesus taking on the role of a slave. And you know what? Did the disciples remember Jesus' words? He told them, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In response to Peter chastising him, Jesus calmly corrects him. And the pendulum of Peter kicks in. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And with Peter, it's all or nothing, nothing or all. Were the other disciples in concert with Peter? Was there embarrassment, silence, confusion, disillusionment? What would your response look like if you were among them? Clearly not expecting this. Did they feel even a sense of shame? It should have been them washing Jesus' feet. Yet there they were humbled by an act of great humility. While none of the twelve are recorded as having washed Jesus' feet, there were two others who did. In Luke chapter 7, we're told of a woman in the city, a sinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And it said, wetting Jesus' feet with her tears and kissing his feet, wiping them with her hair. She didn't miss it. Mary of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus fame anointed his feet with costly perfume, again wiping them with her hair. These two women demonstrated their own humility, and they were accepted by Jesus. One other quick note that I wonder about. In the early part of the book of John, John the baptizer 
he says something about Jesus. He says and declares about him the thong. He says Jesus is the thong, is the thong of whose, about him, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, it's not stated. I don't know categorically. But why would one untie a sandal? Why would you even think about doing that? Might it be in the context of washing someone's feet? Might he be referring to that? I don't know. Possible. Let's look at the significance of what he was doing. First of all, what would it mean for your hour to be at hand? It might, it might suggest that your time is in the spotlight. Would it mean that you had just gotten a dream job or a promotion and the congratulations that come with it? Maybe it's a graduation celebration party for that, retirement party to celebrate all the years of hard work. And maybe you're receiving an award for some achievement or service that you've given. Well, for Jesus, it meant the fulfillment of the mission for which God the Father had sent him. And it also meant his death. Brutal, bloody, alone. If you knew your time was quickly coming to a close, what would you do? Would you seek out pleasure? You only live once? Go out and grab all you can. Would you check another item off your bucket list? Would you seek to get all your affairs in order, your papers, accounts, last requests? Would you surround yourself with family and friends, enjoying company, talking about old times? My guess is whatever you would do, it would not include washing feet. But this was at the top of Jesus' priorities. His hour had come. They were on the eve of Passover, and the sacrificial lambs were being gathered. This night, he would share the bread and cup with his disciples, the very first communion. This night, the disciples would argue about which of them is considered greatest. This night, the disciples would fall asleep when he asked them to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. This night, he would be betrayed with a kiss and arrested in darkness. This night, Peter would deny him three times. This night, all would fall away and be scattered. Jesus knew all. All of these things. Yet instead of indulging in overwhelming anxiety, Jesus chose to focus on what was most important, washing feet. Jesus gave a couple different leading statements which led him to this act of love. One was that Jesus was departing earth and returning to the Father. His time was up, so foot washing was on his mind. Another was that Jesus was proclaimed ruler over all things, the heavens, the earth, and so foot washing was on his mind. Picture that of a human leader If you have a favorite president, picture that person. Maybe there's a celebrity that you look up to. Maybe it's a musician, maybe a famous author. Maybe it's an artist or inventor. Someone you look up to, someone you respect or admire. Picture that person. Think about that person. Imagine meeting them, having them at your home. Now picture that same person 
scrubbing your bathroom floor, vacuuming out your car, cleaning oil stains off the garage floor, cleaning up after what the cat just dragged in. Embarrassing, maybe. Shocking, unexpected acts of humility. But it pales in comparison to this. Look, we know the capstone of all Christianity. We know that without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no resurrection life for us. And without the sacrifice on the cross, there would be no eternal payment for sins. What we sometimes set aside or forget for a moment, it was that it was necessary for Jesus to live a perfect life. As he says, I always do what the Father commands. In order for the sacrifice on the cross to be acceptable. Jesus chose humility as his final lesson in that perfect life. His final act of love before the cross. Jesus' hour had arrived. His moment had come. There's symbolism in this cleansing. On the surface, it may appear, as it did to Peter, that something was horribly wrong. That the ruler of all nations, Lord of all creation, was to lower himself to a place of dishonor. But this was not tragic, and this was not dishonorable. This was inevitable. This inevitable This was an inevitable conclusion to a life lived perfectly. A life lived perfectly in the will of the Father. Perfect obedience. And Jesus cleansing their feet was a foreshadowing of his cleansing them spiritually by his shed blood on the cross. Our sin upon Jesus. The sin of the disciples Upon Jesus. Hundreds of years earlier, God had instituted a sacrificial system in which sin was transferred to people, from people to animals, which were then sacrificed. And you can read more about that in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 4 is a good place to, to dig in. And it talks there about sin offerings. And in short, an anointed priest, an elder, a leader, an individual of the congregation would lay their hands on the head of an acceptable animal, often a bull, a goat, or a lamb, and slay the animal. And that person was forgiven of their guilt. The sin was transferred to the animal to be sacrificed. And the picture we have here is Jesus girded with a towel which is covered with the stains from the disciples. Are you seeing this? Are you getting the picture that he's building? There are 24 feet, the filth of the disciples placed upon Jesus willingly. He took on that dirt, that symbolic sin of these men, and looking ahead to what would be mere hours away when he was to take on our sins and pay for them through his sacrifice on the cross once and for all. But Judas 
even Judas. The disciples were oblivious, even though Jesus had told them that one among them was a devil. They didn't know. Jesus had predicted his betrayal at the Last Supper as well. Jesus knew ahead of time. He knew at the time. He knew who it was. And he washed Judas's feet. Did Judas, after he went and betrayed Christ, did he remember the warm water, the gentle touch, the cleansing and refreshing of his feet? Did he remember the touch of Jesus upon him? Jesus had even given him authority over the money box. He entrusted him with that. Jesus, during the Last Supper, he had handed Judas a sop of bread out of the bowl. And what you may not know is that doing so was an act of honor that one would give to a close friend. He loved him. He loved him by washing his feet. He loved him by honoring him, even though he knew. You might call Judas his enemy. He desired to love even Judas. Remember the words that they hated me without cause? Certainly Judas had no cause. None to hate Jesus. And he loved him to the end. So what do we do with this? What action do we take? Well, first of all, Jesus gives us an example. He says in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do, that you should do, as I did to you. A slave is not greater than his master. A disciple is not greater than his teacher. A child is not greater than his father. And not one of us is greater than Jesus. Look to verse 17, which says, If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If today's sermon leads you to greater knowledge or a simple, satisfied curiosity, but does not take you does not take root and flower into action, then it's really worth nothing. Jesus, the master, the rabbi, is to be imitated even into a lowly role in humility, setting aside our rights, setting aside our place of honor. So first of all, literal foot washing. You may have seen that done before. You may have had that done for you. And that's a good thing. Our actions, our example, extends much beyond that. We're invited to be a servant. 
especially to those who don't expect it. Certainly the disciples didn't expect what was to happen. Me? I kind of like being served. Sitting at a restaurant. Garçon. Another round of cheese sticks for me and the lady. And one for yourself. Well, what could you do? Again, you could scrub the bathroom floor and toilet. Parents, you could take one of your kids' chores on yourself. Children, you could take on one of your siblings' chores. Or you could fill a need that no one has even identified or been asked to do. You could volunteer to change the oil in someone's car. Or it might be as simple and difficult as listening to someone with no other intention but to let them know that they are heard. No assessment, no offered solutions, no I-can-relate-to-that comments. As a family, you could identify someone or you could identify another family with to whom you love extravagantly, just like our Lord Jesus did. Think of something that you feel you've earned the right not to do, something you feel is beneath you. You're glad that's in the past, but something that would benefit someone else. Do something for someone that cannot repay you. Verse 35 of the same chapter, as Jesus spoke to his remaining disciples after Judas went out to betray him, says this, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Understand the order that's taking place here. These men don't become Jesus' disciples by performing acts of love. It is because they are his disciples and love him and are soon to receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, empowering them to love one another, not the other way around. That's action. Well, what about attitude? Philippians chapter 2 spells out for us the attitude we need. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you're looking to serve someone else, to humble yourself, I don't know that it's advisable to be working from our own strengths. And Jesus was a rabbi, he was also Lord of all creation. And from a human perspective, his strengths might be teaching or ruling over or judging perfectly. And I think it says a great deal that at the pinnacle of his ministry, Jesus didn't play to what we might see as his strengths. If we play to our strengths, we run the risk of applause and possibly self-congratulation. As the proverb is written, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Another pitfall to avoid is to see things as simply a series of transactions. We're not to think of the cross or salvation as simply a transaction where we do something and get something. 
Neither are we to see nor engage in acts of humility as transactions, as a way to receive something in return, a way to check yourself and your motivation. This is not a pay-it-forward situation, one of good works proliferating other good works. This is really about a change of character, and it cannot be done by human means. A man I know of with some wisdom told me to be careful of engaging with my own energy and effort alone. It will run out. It is the Holy Spirit at work that is capable of life and a life of humility, a life focused on Jesus. There's a song that, um, called A Winter's Snow. It's up on the screen there. Another Christmas song I like. It could have come like a mighty storm with all the strength of a hurricane. You could have come like a forest fire with the power of heaven in your flame. But you came like a winter's snow, quiet and soft and slow, falling from the sky in the night, to the earth below. Behold the mystery of Christ. He clothed himself as a slave and taught us how to love. Jesus offered everything. And the response from Father? Resurrection life. As brothers and sisters of Jesus, this is our future. Now you can't go back. You can't go back and wash Jesus' feet. But you can move forward in humility. I invite you to take on this mantle of humility. Take on his heart of love and love one another. Let's pray. Father, you are stunning. The disciples weren't ready for you over and over again. You astounded them. Over and over again, you amazed them. Father, they didn't know what to do with your foot washing, with your taking their dirt upon you. but you know all things. Father, we thank you that you are a God who mystifies and amazes us. We don't always understand, but we know you are good. Help us to love others. Help us to wade into the humility that you demonstrated to us and invited us into that very life We thank you, Father, for what you have done and for what is to come. In Jesus' name, amen. One quick encouragement as you go out this week. From Philippians chapter 2. With humility of mind, let let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen. Have a great week.